We like to think that India is a free country and that we are free thinkers, but the truth is that we are still colonized. We think about the world and about our society through frames that have been constructed by others. As an illustration of this, ask yourself what comes to mind when you think of the word the wife. Is the image that comes to mind that of a fallen sex worker, someone worthy only of contempt or pity, or do you get the image of a bewitching courtesan out of Bollywood, dressed in an intricately embroidered anarkali, glowing with the jewelry she is wearing under the light of a crystal chandelier, Rekha or Meena Kumari at the most beautiful? Both these images are false, but these common impressions of the wives reveal a lot about our own prejudices. If only we cared to examine them closely and examine where they came from. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen. My guest today is Sabah Devan, filmmaker and author who has made a series of riveting documentaries, including the 2009 film The Other Song, that journeys through Varanasi, Lucknow, and Muzaffarpur, looking at the lives and histories of the wives. She had immersed herself so deeply in the subject that when she was done with the film, she wrote a book called The Wife Nama, which is filled with some incredible stories as also social insights that come out of history and sit uneasily in our present times. I am delighted that Sabah has agreed to join me on the show today. But before we begin our conversation, let's take a quick commercial break. If you enjoy listening to The Scene and the Unseen, you can play a part in keeping the show alive. The Scene and the Unseen has been a labor of love for me. I've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations, expanding my brain and my universe, and hopefully yours as well. But while the work has been its own reward, I don't actually make much money off the show. Although The Scene and the Unseen has great numbers, advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcasts. I do many, many hours of deep research for each episode, besides all the logistics of producing the show myself. Scheduling guests, booking studios, paying technicians, the travel and so on. So well, I'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going and that involves you. My proposition for you is this. For every episode of The Seen and the Unseen that you enjoy, buy me a cup of coffee or even a lavish lunch, whatever you feel it's worth. You can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in slash support and contributing an amount of your choice. This is not a subscription. The Seen and the Unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in. This is just a gesture of appreciation. Help keep this thing going. seenunseen.in slash support. Sabha, welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Before we sort of start talking about uh, the wife Nama and uh, uh, you know everything that's in the book, tell me a little bit about you know your own personal journey. Uh, how did you become a filmmaker? How did all this happen? How did I become a filmmaker? Oh Lord, that was years back. Well, actually, it started off initially as a kind of a rebellion. Both my parents were journalists, and it was expected that I'd become a journalist. And so, of course, I didn't want to become a journalist. So the next best thing I could think of was to be a filmmaker. But jokes apart, actually, I was interested in films. And um, I then joined the Mass Communication Research Center, Jamia. Although at that time, I wasn't very clear, you know, at that age, about the difference between documentaries or fiction. 
सो आई जॉइंट इनोसेंटली इनफ थिंकिंग सिनेमा करेंगे फिल्में बनाएंगे एंड देन ही प्रेस टू फाउंड माई सेल्फ इन दिस प्लेस वेर यू नो दायर फोकस वॉज ऑन द डॉक्यूमेंट्री जॉनर एंड दैट ओपन कंप्लीटली वाइड न्यू वर्ल्ड फॉर मी आई मीन इट एंड द ब्यूटी ऑफ द डॉक्यूमेंट्री यू नो द ब्यूटी ऑफ रियालिटी हाउ स्लिपरी अ क्लीचर रियालिटी इज and how difficult it is to define reality your reality might not be my reality so i mean it throws up all these questions and that's that's pretty much how i entered the field and you know as a kid in the 1980s i remember that to me when i thought of uh, films and popular culture documentaries were like the most boring thing out there they were that films revision stuff that you saw once a week on doordarshan or whatever and it was boring as hell and obviously documentaries are a lot more than that so you know when did you first get that spark of discovery that wait a minute this is not some boring thing about something you know where somebody is droning on and on and stuff you're not interested about you can create magic out of this at mass communication research center i pretty much thought the same you know i was quite horrified when i realized that i was at a place where they specialized in documentaries so you know i had these visions of like being condemned to making these awful films division documentaries but um we think i think we had some wonderful teachers at that point and uh, also exposure to world cinema and we saw documentaries there's you know which was certainly not like uh, the films division propaganda that we had grown up associating documentaries with and um, also the early 80s was a very exciting time for the indian documentary because the indian documentary independent documentary was coming into its own you know away from state funding and that was the time when we were students and we were discovering documentary so we were exposed to the work of people like meera nair and deepal sanraj and navroz anand patwardhan and we were very lucky we were quite blessed to have them actually come and show their films to us and talk to us and so yeah and you know even in terms of uh, world cinema and documentaries international documentaries i think there was a certain kind of an exposure that we got at jamia which uh, then you know opened us to the possibilities of documentaries being uh, an extremely creative medium so you know and extremely exciting i mean documentary or that's the matter with any art is what you make it to be So, and, and that was also an exciting time for cinema in the sense Sham Benegal, Govind Yalini, the whole absolutely uh, all of that was also happening. Yes. Um. So did you also look at that and you know think that okay maybe I want to make the shift someday and make feature films or were you already so excited by what documentaries could do that you you were just happy where you were? I was. Uh, we were also exposed to you know world cinema in terms of fiction, so it was an exciting time both for fiction and non-fiction. and yes i mean i think in the initial years there was always this feeling that some day i'll make a fiction you know feature film but you know in the thing is that somehow while working on the documentary and over the period of time documentary stopped becoming a poor cousin to the feature film at least for me as a filmmaker because it offers just so many exciting possibilities 
and it it's also very challenging as a medium because i mean there is of course that much that you have planned but with a documentary there's just so much that you possibly cannot plan and which comes in and if you're receptive to it it can bring magic to what you're doing so so i think that the initial stage yes it was always like or oh, documentary is like a stepping stone to feature films but that was in the initial stage then you pretty much realize that documentary actually is a huge challenge in itself and in many ways i think more challenging because there's just so much that's not in your control i mean i guess with a feature film you've constructed a narrative and that's it you follow the script but with the documentary you're yeah, sort of yeah i mean i'm sure with feature films it's extremely challenging and it's not only a certain senior a uh, linear progression uh, that's not you know what i meant but i mean that in a documentary you could say i'm born to do this you could land up in a place and the character that you had kind of spent time with etc etc and you know thought she was all ready to shoot with you and suddenly something's happened you know there's some death in the family or something some emergency and she's gone and so pretty much you are there but your character is gone <laughs> and so what are you going to do either you cancel your shoot or you think of something else to do so i think those are the ways i think as a documentary filmmaker you've got to be really really very resourceful and uh, you know trying to work out things at the spot and did you fall into that trap early on that you know you go there with a fixed sort of notion in mind a fixed narrative in mind but then you have to adapt or were you aware from the start that you just have to leave yourself open no i i think mercifully you know i a i think it was also the kind of training we had at jamia i mean we were lucky because you know we had uh, professor james beveridge he was one of the stalwarts of the documentary canadian documentary and uh, it's he who he and his wife margaret who was an ace editor uh, who helped set up the film school at jamia we were lucky to have him as our teacher so the emphasis was actually on cinema verity of of you know shooting as of unfolding as things happen so you don't construct um and uh, you don't feed people lines uh, but that's the simpler aspect of it i think what is more problematic and i think a lot of filmmakers tend to fall into that trap and i think a lot of times that comes a out of ignorance of not knowing better and b out of a certain arrogance which is that you presume someone's reality that you understand someone's reality and you presume where they are coming from and you presume that they are going to say this or they ought to say this and this ought to be their understanding and a lot of people fall into that trap even in terms of very political film making you you know there's the, the subaltern the subaltern has to be in the vanguard of the revolution the subaltern may not be on the vanguard of the revolution you know and uh, so so i think i did start off with certain notions because how can not someone not be like that you know you those presumptions but i think as you grow older and hopefully a bit wiser and also you get enough knocks in life to get some humility dinned into you to realize that you don't have the answers and it's good it's good you don't have all the answers 
because that's the only way that you can relate to people as human beings to human beings, not as like filmmaker here and subject there. Um, and it's only then when you can have the two people, you are talking to people as people uh, without any preconceived expectations um, that it makes for a real conversation, actually a meaningful conversation. I think that took me time. And that was the biggest learning process. And what kind of subjects were you drawn to? You know, a lot of my work has been with women for the very simple reason that I am a woman and I think I understand women better. Uh, women interest me. Women's lives interest me. That's, I think, the most important thing. And um, having been part of the feminist movement and, you know, believing in a certain kind of a politics, yes, I'm drawn to uh, the kind of challenges that women face. So, yeah, my protagonists have mostly been women. But the subject, the subjects could be anything. You know, a lot of my work has been political and working in the realm of culture. So it's a pretty diverse portfolio in that sense. You know, that because I've worked with, you know, survivors of abusive marriages. But then I've also worked with girls and young women going to the mountains for the first time and just a trek film which is a fun film. And then, of course, I worked with this trilogy that I did, which is the other song, is um, part of that trilogy, which is on, uh, you know, stigmatized female performers. So, yeah, kind of moved. And I've also worked, done a film on the women of my own family. It's called Sita's Family. Looking at middle-class women and looking at the kind of issues that they face. I mean, women who, uh, you know, made the choice of, you know, working outside the house. But then what are the kind of expectations that society has of them? But more importantly, which they impose on themselves, the kind of, you know, expectations that they've internalized about being good women. So, yeah. And, you know, like one of the things that has struck me over the last few years reading history and doing a lot of episodes with historians is that we take the male gaze on history for granted. Most of history, of course, is told from a male gaze. And therefore, there is a lot that is invisible or unseen, as it were, to that gaze. And it struck me while reading your book that so much of the book also sort of deals with that, about making that unseen sort of uh, visible. And what I also found sort of fascinating was, you know, one is, of course, the cliched ways of looking at the virus, which I sort of referred to in the introduction, which is, you know, what... I grew up with at least, so, uh, you know. We all grew up with. Yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, sort of pretty much what you thought. And then you peel back the layers. And, uh, you know, another thing that I have sort of discovered in recent episodes with historians is how so much of what we think of our own society and culture is constructed by the British when they came here because they were obviously looking for simplistic narratives to explain the world to themselves so they could neatly categorize everything. You in your book, of course, refer to Francis Buchanan, but this was pretty much the attitude of the British from the late 18th century onwards. They're trying to figure it out. They have access to only the elites who are, of course, upper caste uh, Brahmins. So they get that sort of a version of history and then that gets ossified. And the rich, thriving sort of 
कल्चर ऑफ द वाइफ्स यू नो देन दे शाइन दिस मॉरलिस्टिक लाइट ऑन इट एंड एवरीथिंग जस्ट चेंजेस टेल मी अ लिटिल बिट अबाउट दिस प्रोसेस सी वी नीड टू अंडरस्टैंड अ फ्यू थिंग्स द थिंग इज नॉट दैट यू नो आई थिंक व्हाट द बुक डजंट डील विद इट इन दैट ग्रेट अ डिटेल although i do mention it and which is that tawaifs it's not as if before the india was colonized or before the british came tawaifs occupied a highly respectable position in society which is the book the book keeps actually uh, you know reiterating that they enjoyed high prestige which is not the same as being respectable you know because they were attached to the nobility and individual men of the elite and the court so they had access to power they had access to wealth and they were of course very sought after performers musicians and dancers in many cases also poets and writers and, and patrons of actually uh, artists they occupied a very ambiguous space between you know repute and disrepute which is because of the certain stigma of being out of parda and you know out in the gaze of available actually to all technically although they were not uh, but yes i mean open, you know they were out in the gaze of men and yet they had a certain designated space within society they were not certainly not looked down upon in fact people you know there was this much sought after too and what was also very interesting and if while i was researching was it's not just the men that uh, they had relationships with they actually would be invited at points of time by the women in the zanana not very often but they did and um, so to perform on certain special occasions etc which i think is an important point because the ways in which patriarchy insulates you know women of disrepute from what are the pure women with tawaifs that was not exactly happening so i mean not all tawaifs but tawaifs of the highest repute for instance did have some access to the zananas of the aristocracy because we have mention of that even in the novel umrao janada which actually is you know is hailed for its very very uh, authentic portrayal of 19th century lucknow makes mention of that i think what happens with the coming in of uh, the british is as you know as you have mentioned very rightly it's not just the tawaifs i mean there was pretty much it happened with everything where here is you know an alien government a colonial government trying to understand in the simplest possible terms a subject people and a subject people which you know i mean the most bewildering variety uh, possible and heterogeneity amongst them so this is not europe they, they they chose to colonize india which is an entire subcontinent in itself and uh, and they you know they had been confronted with this kind of a heterogeneity so one of the ways in which one and uh, you know colonizers deal with heterogeneity is to actually somewhere smoothen out the differences and to to you know make uniform or at least impose a certain uniformity of understanding 
सो या यू दे trying to understand an alien people it is also informed by the imperatives of colonization itself so it's not entirely an innocent exercise and there is a certain imperative there's an imperative of you know divide and rule and uh, much as it sounds a cliche now but the fact is that there is ways in which there is a constant refrain about hindus and muslims whereas the interesting thing is that actually in the early ethnographic records there are communities upon communities of people who return themselves as both hindus and muslims much to the chagrin of you know the, the colonial ethnographers because how can you be both hindu and muslim in fact even the term hindu encompasses so much less than Absolutely. what it does today is practically it's a, a 19th century term actually and people not returning themselves as hindus people are returning themselves as bhumiar or this or that you know it's in caste based so this ways in which there is a certain homogenizing of, of putting them under a certain labeling people that process takes place with the coming of the british and the process gets consolidated solidified with that entire process of census you know which from uh, i think 1891 or something when first census records start getting collected um but it's also a process in which especially after 1857 where there are ways in which there is a certain stereotypes being created and quite consciously being created and projected among those stereotypes you know are the stereotypes of the decadent depraved you know less vicious uh indian male especially indian princes and uh, who are more usually muslim nawabs but could be actually also hindus and um, because this is the ruling class the native ruling class that stood up against colonial might in 1857 so this ways in which they are being maligned and the kind of lifestyle associated with them then is portrayed as decadent um now here of course i think what also happens is that evangelism and victorian morality also come into play because a figure of a tawaif makes no sense she can only be a prostitute in fact that treatment is given not just to tawaifs but even the evdasis so any female sexuality that exists outside of marriage has to be prostitute so so in fact that is an entire spectrum uh that gets labeled as prostitute and not just the tawaifs and you know what also sort of uh strikes me as interesting is that there are almost like two forms of patriarchy playing out here one of course is that the very existence of tawaifs 
as almost a separate class and a separate community of people points to the fact that the rest of the women the women who are married who are part of households are supposed to keep their sexuality repressed so that's a separate class and therefore because you want singing dancing women who are expressing themselves freely it's almost as if there is a necessity for a community of the wives who uh, then kind of looked at differently but without necessarily the moral stigma which uh then the british bring to it and the british come with this moral stigma that this sort of sexual expression blah 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 they give a moral color to it and you know even the sort of like every time i hear of the wives being painted as sex workers and prostitutes and the first thing i think that it strikes me we have to fight is what is wrong with sex workers and prostitutes Absolutely. to begin with why should you know that be a slur but given that it is and is one of the things that we've normalized and is there regardless it's a huge step down the uh, the other question i wanted to ask was how empowered are the tawives in the sense that in contrast to the other women in society they appear to have more autonomy like sure they function within that patriarchal setup and they have to cater to the wishes of men and that's what they are trained for but at the same time within that setup they can shape their destiny far more they are the heads of their communities as you pointed out through examples they even get a major share of the revenue share like you know if there are 16 annas nine goes to the tawife and uh, whatever and they have a very sort of respected place um, within that community so you know looking back as a feminist and obviously these are not people who are feminists per se they are no. making the best of what they can within that system absolutely what's your sense of these different degrees of autonomy and how these women are trying to negotiate these spaces you know i wouldn't i refrained and even in the book i refrained from using terms like empowered because a tawives don't exist as a community we are talking about them in the past tense necessarily because that community has been wiped out and uh do i think there are you know terms like being empowered for instance or liberated we these you know the present context coming out of a certain uh, politics and and in the present i am very hesitant to use those parameters for in the past because you know i mean you have to see and understand reality within in the past context in the historical context within those parameters of the given parameters of those times yes definitely relatively speaking and i will keep using the term relative because it was relative See, the fact is that the tawives were not independent of patriarchy they were very much an adjunct of patriarchy the community existed because of patriarchy you know patriarchy and in the sense of male entitlement which wanted actually their wives but also wanted to have these you know fascinating beautiful talented witty you know mistresses so i mean so the fact is that definitely uh, male entitlement was at the base of uh, you know the existence of the wives or devdasis that goes without saying so it's like the men are making these boxes to put women in and this particular box has more space within it uh, but... but it never you see the, the, i think what happens though is that socially when and with human beings it never quite works out as you expect it to so for instance even in terms of you know when you're saying that in terms of women of the household being sexually repressed that's our presumption living in the 21st century you know there's enough uh, uh, writing and glimpses that one gets of the zanana which seems 
to have been a pretty thriving sexual space, which, you know, is something that, but then one would have to understand it within the context of that space. If we try to start posing our understanding of what is active, uh, being sexually active or sexually liberated, it doesn't work out that way. Similarly with the Tawaifs. Yes, obviously, I mean, they were there as adjunct and they were very much an adjunct of patriarchy. Their entire existence was dependent upon the patronage that they received from men. Without that, there's nothing. But given all that, within that, the fact is that here's a community of women where it is the women within the community who call the shots. You know, they are the ones, for instance, who are the head of the households. They are the ones who are the karta of the house, you know, in terms of the Hindu undivided family. The tawaif head of the family, actually her position corresponded more or less to the eldest son of the Hindu undivided family. They are the ones who, uh, you know, depending, I mean, the, the laws of inheritance were different for different castes and communities of tawaifs. But in many communities, tawaif daughters got a larger share for instance, of the inheritance from their mothers and aunts, etc., then their brothers. In many other communities, at least the community I worked with, they got an equal share. Uh, sisters and brothers had an equal share. It varied from community to community. But then they were much wealthier, ultimately, because they also held their own property. They made their own property. These were self-made women. So they were also chadrayans of the community at large. You know, so the quote, community itself was not just made up of women. It was also made up of the accomplished musicians, the tabla players, the sarangi players, the majira players, all of whom were men, who were, who were teachers to tawaifs, were also their accomplices, and who were also dependent on tawaifs for their livelihood. And in every town, you know, you had these quota communities, and it was the tawaifs, and they had their own system of, you know, panchayat or council, which to regulate the affairs, internal affairs of the community. And it was the Tawaifs who headed these panchayats, always. So, you know, in terms of the household, it is, they had definitely, it is they who called the shots of how the house would be run, how, you know, the family would be run. And they had relatively greater autonomy in terms of also choosing who to take on as a lover and who not to. Which now that depended, you know, if you came from, you're a poor Tawaif and you came from, you know, a poorer family, you might not have the luxury to exercise that choice because you would have to then take on anyone who offered. But uh, the say the women who were on the higher echelons of the community, they definitely exercised that choice. That's very well known. So, you know, they, they rejected lovers, they took on lovers. So, yes, I mean, there was a certain sense, a certain autonomous lifestyle, I'd say, that one sees there, and uh, which also, I think, gets reflected in the pursuit of their art practice. That's an argument that I've made, that actually the, the Tumri and Dadra, etc., that we hear, which is from the Tawaif's voice, that reflects a certain kind of autonomous living, lifestyle a certain openness of being. So, 
and a, a really telling uh, illustration of the centrality of women in the Tawaf community was uh, anecdote at the start of your book where you talk about how your protagonist shows you this family portrait of generations of a family her yeah. aunts and grandmothers and grand aunts and all that and the family portrait is entirely women and you point out in contrast on how a traditional family portrait in any other family my own family portrait is mostly men my father's family portraits there just such few women and they're not part of the main portraits at all so you know the so called official family portrait has all these men but the women are not there except much later now that's only but that happens only by the 60s or so where then women start making an entry into family portraits but not earlier than that but yes i mean in tawaif households you know you have these walls and you have these photographs and just women you know this my aunt my great aunt my mother my grandmother and there are no men present so it is a very telling men are there they are part of the household but uh, the kind of uh, status that they have is pretty much what women enjoy uh, in patriarchal households yeah then you know one of the things that uh, sort of your book talks a lot about is the extensive training in the arts that uh, the wives go through you know the traditions of the bol banao thumri hori chaiti kajri dadra the association of the kathak with the the wives and all that and at one point you say quote besides long and arduous training in music and dance in order to be successful the wives had to be educated in a range of other skills such as a grounding in literature and politics as well as knowledge of the intricacies of social etiquette and of erotic stimulation uh, stop quote and i have a couple of questions here one is how are the arts being looked at by all these people like today the arts are something relatively respectable that if you uh, you know know a woman who's a writer or a singer or whatever is very respectable you know lata mangeshkar is absolutely revered hmm. um how were the arts looked at back then and was there a reason that it was you know more the province of the the wife so to say and um looked at by whom looked at in a general social sense okay by society by society like you know you have women in the in tawaif communities they are being trained in all of those arts but there is not so much of that happening outside of it it, it almost seems there is none if, happening outside yeah it, it is almost mm. as if uh, it is restricted to uh, them and the second sense that uh, you know i got from the paragraph i read out for example is that all of this you know training in the arts training in literature training in practices of seduction is all a means to an end you have to get a patron yeah. there's an economic imperative at the bottom of it i think there is a definite shift in the ways in which the arts get constructed and uh, looked upon from the say the early 20th century with the coming on of cultural nationalism and then there's this entire focus upon our ancient culture which kind of starts you know it's part of a certain kind of nationalism and um, defining a certain kind of an indianness so that which, makes cultural expression more respectable yeah, so where where yes music and dance of a certain kind but then again that there's a problem there because music and dance of a certain kind is acceptable and not of another kind i'll come to that later but i think that if you read you know so any of the writings before that and even if you talk to the older people in the community uh, even now i mean not that they came from that century they pretty much but 
I mean, they carry certain oral memories and traditions far more. I sense a very matter of fact, robust dealing with the arts. You know, it's not like these rarefied deities, Sangeet, to puja ke liye hai, you know, that whatever, Sangeet sadhana, you know. You don't hear that, at least from within the community. Music is terribly important and not just as a means of livelihood. I mean, sure, it was their livelihood, but it's also the ways in which it defines them. So there is a, their own sense of being gets defined as musician. So I think the ways in which they look at music is so so subliminal that it also defies easy categorization or definition. I mean, even if they, I mean, I've tried to talk to a lot of women about it and then they'll tell you things like, they'll give you anecdotes to explain to you what music means to them. And each one of them is important, you know. I mean, in terms of this woman who told me that how, you know, she got this patron and who, who loved her so much and so deeply and he wanted to make a respectable woman out of her and so... He took her away and he said, now you don't have to dance and sing for a living. And he looked after her and he was true to his promise. He did look after her and all of that. And she had children from him. Things went were going fine, but she started falling ill and she went into a deep depression. She was just terribly ill. And, um, and then finally no medicine worked. And then, you know, and this is like a tale that gets told by a lot of sources. It's one of those apocryphal tales, which a lot of Tawaifs will tell you. It's also attributed to Begum Akhtar. The same thing happened to Begum Akhtar. But then a lot of other lesser Tawaifs will also tell you that and take that story for themselves. I think the importance is not whether this happened or doesn't happen. I think it's what's, what is it telling you. It's telling you that for all, you know, the music is like, this is saans ki tarah hai. You know, it's your breath. And so, so all the respectability and status that they could get in exchange, this story explains that how actually without music, you die. You know, and you die a spiritual death, if not a physical death. Although in these stories, it's like I was dying physically too, because it's just shriveling up in within myself. So I think that to me is a very powerful indicator of what music means. Uh, but it's not necessarily imbued with the kind of spiritual connotations that music gets imbued by, say, by early 20th century under the influence of the cultural nationalists. I mean, if the community of musicians saw it that way, I think pretty much even in the terms of writing, in terms of society and patrons, music is, of course, you know, valorized, validated. Musicians are made much of Um Patronage of musicians indicates a certain kind of your good taste and status. I mean, adds, you know, kind of a certain respectability to your position, etc. It's prestige. But music and gavayas, you know, there is also a certain kind of um, disrepute attached to it. You know, it's it's like there is... If you and I think that has to do very much with a certain fear and a certain construction of this is my understanding of masculinity, and which is that you know indulgence in music, in ras as they say na, jo ras mein lean hona, that's all very well, 
um so whether it is music or whether it is the beauty of a woman love you know all of those things to be an aesthete is something of course which is preferable and which is much looked up to but if as a man you lose yourself into that then it is doom for you so there is a certain kind of a cautionary note always there in terms of be a good patron but be a judicious patron uh if you kind of go completely enraptured by it um then you spell doom for yourself for your household for business for for dharma uh and i th- and that holds true i think both for you know i mean pretty much within the you know hindus and muslims uh upper classes there is that certain uh, and i think you in mughal writing again the ideal mirza who's the mughal aristocrat the ideal mirza he is an aesthete he will patronize artists but he will also patronize you know matlab wrestlers and he will patronize this and he'll patronize that but he he shouldn't get completely and so enraptured that he loses sense of his duties and responsibilities this is pretty much the same thing as the kartas of a hindu's household aap kijiye you 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 know if you have the means certainly indulge in the finer things but don't get so enraptured that it brings doom to your household and you have so many cautionary tales about that so i think that that is the certain role the certain place that the arts occupied where arts are very well and they are marker of your status of you know the, the status of the patron there's because they were based so much on individual patronage without individual patronage arts could not flourish but arts did not define in totality uh, your sense of identity of being whatever you were in all i mean for the artist yes not in the way for instance by early 20th century you have the arts which start defining a certain notion of indianness for instance before that there is also a very robust kind of uh, ways in which arts are looked at like they're not rarefied so you have this thing about you know when now in a late early 20th century writing there's this whole big difference being made between classical music and so called lowly popular music you see writing before that that kind of difference is not made also in terms of the singers themselves i mean not that we have too much of oral record of it because recordings come in only by early 20th century but in the early recordings you have singers who are pretty much singing a whole medley of stuff um and not just very consciously raga based uh uh you know music so i don't know if i've answered your question but i think there are shifts that take place by early uh, 20th century uh, under the imperative of nationalism you know in which then the arts get start getting defined in a certain way which is how we receive them now how we perceive them now that's not necessarily something that is shared uh you know pre-nationalism and and that's a fascinating point you made about uh, you know that conception of uh, masculinity uh, which i'll sit back and process gradually uh, where it almost seems that you're drawing an analog between the arts and the wives 
where men are supposed to patronize both yeah. but not get carried away and give themselves over to both would that be uh... yeah i mean the arts are often symbolized you know as beautiful women also na they, yeah. they come in that shape so it's the musicians i mean the wives yes uh, but even male musicians i mean the fact is that you have to maintain a basically the whole uh, emphasis was on maintaining knowing how to maintain a judicious balance of being an aesthete but also being a householder and yeah. a responsible householder and that has to be balanced now that that kind of world view changes with uh, the coming in of uh, cultural nationalism and so you have you know music for instance music now starts defining the contours of indian identity and you know pride of of a certain nationalist pride in being indian so and that carries with it a whole lot of baggage because then certain kind of music becomes acceptable a lot of other kind of music is not acceptable certain musicians are acceptable certain musicians many musicians really in which also includes all the tawaifs and the devdasis who you know who are seen to embody a certain an illicit sexuality and uh, you know their art practice is based on pleasure seeking now that is not something which is very acceptable to the cultural nationalists who are imbuing the arts with these all these spiritual connotations you know of some higher purpose and higher being and so those things change and so you know in that process it's actually not just the colonialists who give the tawaifs who gave tawaifs you know a big kick the bigger push and stigmatization came actually from our very own nationalists and as you've pointed out in your book uh, our nationalists were actually educated by the british in the british system so you know they did pick up some interesting british liberal values but they also picked up this kind of sense of uh, morality one yeah. question that struck me repeatedly while sort of reading your book was about the tawaifs sense of themselves in the sense that if i take the very cynical view that you may disagree with but if i take the very cynical view for a moment that all human interactions are transactional and that whatever else that appears non transactional is essentially a veneer we are rationalizing it so if there's a the kind of women who are living traditional lives and they're housewives and they're doing whatever in some sense they are self delusional but i would imagine that the wives would be less delusional because they would have a much clearer sense of the transactional nature of relationships of the sort of role that they play within uh, you know the patriarchal system that they are part of so does that make sense to you that there is a greater sense of self awareness there and and this also struck me like you you quoted one tawaif as telling you uh, tum bahut bholi ho aur bahut bewakoof bhi ho and and this also seems to be uh, uh, you know an expression of uh, a certain kind of i think of that has to do with she was commenting more on my class and okay. <laughs> the, the the kind of you know i mean you you come from a certain class and you are kind of inured from the harshness of life and so mm. there's a certain naivety that she presumed that i was uh coming with but um firstly i you know i don't think that women who were housebound were necessarily delusional at all necessarily you know, but uh, it would have helped if they were for them to be happy Yes, they sought their happiness and found their happiness. No, sure, there was in ways in which they. Mm. I, I'm sure. I mean, it's just that so much less is written about from within the household, in terms of you know 
I'm sure they also found their ways of playing patriarchy. You have to, if you have to survive. Mm. Whether in a nice way or a bad way, but that's not the point. The point is that if you have to, it's an unequal relationship. And so people who are placed in that position on the wrong foot, then they find their ways uh, to play the system. So I mean, that's because if you see, if you were to talk to, I mean, I've, you know, I'm not talking about Tawaisi, I'm talking about housebound women. Mm-hmm. And they interest me a great deal because my own family, for instance, and especially my father's family, uh, pretty much represented that, you know, this very patriarchal family and very tradition bound to a certain extent. And yet there are all these stories of these uh, grandmothers and grand aunts whose word was law. Now, how was their word law? You know, because technically they did not enjoy, they did not even have the right to inherit, etc. So how was their word law? But their word apparently was law. And even none of the men crossed, you know, if they said some, decided something, then even the men could, wouldn't go against that. So I think that it's a complicated field. It's not that all women could. I think most women had a shit time and a horrible time. <laughs> but I think we can't make victims out of everyone. So, and the fact is that the women lived certain lives. And that's for me, that's what I'm saying is that as as a documentarian, I mean, that's what has always been interesting. What were those lives? What did they make of it? How did they look at it? I mean, so I don't know if they were delusional at all. No, I mean, I, I, pretty, pretty much might have seen that, man, I'm situated here. Now I've got to work myself into a certain way. And, you know, I mean, they were, after all, there they were, they, in this hive of complicated, really power-laden relationships. How to move and make your move. It seemed like some elaborate kind of a chess game, if you look at it from the outside. And, well, they were, they, they played it. So maybe some played it better than the others. But uh, no, I think I think my phrasing was clumsy. Uh, mm. I wasn't using the term delusional as as a way of dissing them. Like my very cynical view is that I think we all need delusions to survive, and we choose our own delusions. You know, some may yeah. believe in God, or some may overemphasize uh, notions of romantic love or whatever. And it seems to me that uh, the Tawaifs, by virtue of their position, would at least be disabused of some of the typical delusions that I might think that otherwise... again would be romanticizing them because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. The fact is that, yes, there. I think there's maybe a greater awareness than most in terms of having an awareness of the transactional nature of their relationships, which maybe many of us, and I think especially the middle class, we are uncomfortable admitting that. And so we kind of say, we put a lot of things to it. But that's the same as sex workers too. There is a yeah. certain, uh, and there's a recognition of that because with this flex worker, for instance, it comes stripped of everything else. So you've got to recognize it for what it is. And I think with the Tawaifs too, what they were very good at actually was to create illusion. So I think that is the interesting point because, you know, here are women who are entering into, well, I will be your lover. You will be my patron. You will maintain me that monthly income, blah, 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 blah. You know, it came with a certain ways of being. And so it was a certain transaction, but it was never stated as such. It was all played out as this elaborate love affair. 
and uh, you know with uh, so they are in control of those so well yes but which is what they would like to believe that they were always in control but believe me there were a lot of stories even in this book there are where sometimes they were not in control they do they human beings you know human beings win in love lose in love and i think that's how things go on so yeah i wouldn't make them into some super women and that was my endeavor also in the book so they're not that these super women who are all so clear-eyed all the time relatively speaking yes because the nature of their relationship with the outside not within themselves there is a certain recognition because it's also easier to recognize the transactional nature of that relationship because that's how it takes place and yes there is a certain kind of a wisdom and smartness that is there because they are survivors and these are self-made women i think that is really important so they don't have any padding of you know family or someone padding you up forget about family just your class privileges or where you come from or you know none of that so if you are a survivor then you know you cannot afford to be in some delusional state you've got to be far more clear right that certainly but uh, to the extent that for women who were i mean we are talking about the heydays of the tawaif culture yes there were young tawaifs who also fell in love and who also stupidly wanted to throw away their you know thriving careers who fell in love during wrestling matches as yeah, we shall yeah, discuss yes. shortly and who well who you know it was just as well that dilip singh went off mm. otherwise she was quite happy to have gone after she was a young tawaif german yeah, yeah. so those things happened i mean after all these men and women this love strikes all so no and it's it's interesting that the story you mentioned about the tawaif falling ill because she has been separated from her music seem poignant to me and that also seem to speak to this point and i hope i'm not simplifying too much that where is they might recognize the contingent nature of everything else their relationship with music is not contingent because if you are a musician there is nothing transactional about that it's all encompassing and therefore when separated from the one genuine thing in your life i can sort of sense where that you know, there are lots actually music is of course a very 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 important thing but that's not the only genuine thing in the lives of tawaifs sure you know yeah. their relationships with each other for instance i mean the kind of very close relationships that women share with each other now that is something and i the book has it uh, you know is except i'm not that i'm not underlining it but yeah. the fact is their primary relationships are with women with other women yeah are women with their own family their sisters or their daughters or nieces or whatever aunts or very often they uh, adopted children adopted children friends women friends from within the community and these are really intense relationships so i remember one of the women who's now a very good friend very early on i was flicking through her photographs and i came across this two photographs with the same woman and with her arm around her and there's something about it so i said who is she and she said ye hamari friend hai you know and that seemed okay friend you know this and she is also a tawaif and but from gaya not from even the same town then over the years i got to know her 
to this day i don't really know the nature of their relationship whether it's sexual or not i don't know and i don't think it matters yeah because i'm not sure that for her too is the kind of woman she is there's a certain abundance of so much to her you know in terms of the ability to give and the ability to also take so i don't know but yes i know why those photographs are there because the intensity of that love that friendship you know she is hamari friend hai it really struck to me i can't explain it but it meant so much the way she said it and of course then i got to know her and i met the other woman and i know how close they are i mean it's it's like you know that if this woman if there's something plaguing her then the other woman will definitely know you know she will know what is the real issue so those are also relationships which are very very important so actually family relationships it is the other part which is rarely talked about which is there in the book of course book talks is locates them in their family is we we make this categorization between family women and tawives family women are respectable women and tawives are well tawives and somehow in popular culture in cinema tawives are always shown you know these alienated creatures from nowhere almost with no one and who've come and then there is some like conniving uh you know lady of the you know owner of the kotha who has either kidnapped her or bought her or whatever whatever the fact is they all belong to a close knit community and very close knit families and uh, those families and these are women who are heading those families and so carry a huge sense of duty and responsibility now there a lot of it is not it most of it i don't see it as transactional at all it comes out of well those are givens this is ki hum hum yahan ki badi beti hain it's like very much like i am the elder son of the family i've got to do this so i've got to do it and so you know you, you say well, why do you have to do this why do you have to get your nephews uh into jobs we find jobs this but who else will i have to do it and until they don't they have to live with me so you know this in fact i see in tawaif households there's a lot of emphasis on that these are women who are you know taking care of very extended families very very extended families a lot of them you know actually fairly parasitical in nature because you know this is one woman earning or maximum two women earning and everyone just kind of living well, that's the nature of those families used to be now it's of course it's changed um but um there nothing that yes there now whether it's delusional or you know it's pretty much the same as family you know as we see it in the other families fair enough and a lot of your book does come across it's, as if it's just a story of another family, family. and there's so much intimacy yeah, because and because we don't affection. see them the writing actually i think a lot of times that point doesn't come across the book of course is located in the family these yeah. are families and uh, also the i you know the, the the ways in this family quarrels family tensions but also closeness and estrangements but then rapprochement all of that pretty much of what indian families are all about so except that here it's not really the same because here it's the women who are actually the drivers yeah and uh, 
in those ways actually certain dynamics change very much but the expectations and the responsibilities and duties they are pretty much played out in a similar manner true let's take a quick commercial break and after the commercial break we'll uh, come back and talk about one of the most fascinating characters in your book that's Thurman Beebe and her story which also i think you know her life seems to be set just as the sands are shifting and you know so much is changing for the wives and indeed for india so i found it quite fascinating let's take a quick commercial break If you're listening to the scene and the unseen it means you like listening to audio and you're thirsty for knowledge that being the case I'd urge you to check out Storytel the sponsors of this episode Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world their international collection is stellar but so is a local collection they have a fantastic range of marathi and hindi audiobooks what's more i do a weekly podcast there called the book club with amit varma in which i talk about one book every week giving context giving you a taste of it and so on download that app and listen to my show and as long as storytell sponsors this show within this commercial itself i will recommend an audiobook that i liked on that platform every week my recommendation for this week is the ivory throne by manu pille this is a marvelous book about kerala and its badass women an eye opening in so many different ways manu had joined me on episode 156 of the scene and the unseen to speak about this book and now you can listen to the book on storytell the ivory throne by manu pille download the storytell app or visit storytell.com remember the storytell with a single l storytell.com Welcome back to the scene in the unseen. I'm chatting with Sabha Devan about a fantastic book, The Wife Nama, and indeed all her work on exploring the history of uh, the Wife community. And you know what I loved about your book also is that it's not a boring retelling of this happened in history, that happened, but it's got all these wonderful, vivid characters who come so alive. And one of them, of course, is a character of Dharman Bibi. And uh, Dharman Bibi is not just a young wife; she's also a wrestler. So tell us a little bit about you know her early life and what her journey reveals about you know those times and I think see Dharman Bibi is uh, an early 19th century wife and um, so now she is important because she represents just a certain glimpse of uh, you know the kind of um, the role that the wives played or you know the kind of access that they had to power and um, the way that they were being looked at just before 1857 you know in fact the whole thing builds up to 1857 you know the rebellion of 1857 and therefore when this story came to me and you know this family they talked about their great 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 grandmother I was like completely, you know, taken in because um, a I had not come across a continuous family history that went that long back, and b she is just lovely, you know. And th- then there was a mention of her even in the gazetteer. I found it, so I said, "Wow!" I mean, she's absolutely lovely. But she is not the only, you know. The, the thing about being a wrestler, strange as it may sound. it actually there were other tawives of a later vintage who also i am not too sure what the connection was but i think maybe it's like a physical regimen or exercise you're really fit at least probably because 
I've come across at least two or three instances of, uh, you know, women, uh, of Tawaiyafs, either being interested in wrestling, Chalo, interested in wrestling, fine, you are and the patrons of wrestlers, which also you don't kind of associate, but yes, like, but also being in, doing wrestling, knowing wrestling, knowing Latbazi, so, you know, these swordmanship, etc. It's very strange. That kind of goes out then. By about late 19th century, one doesn't find these references as much. But in Banaras, I have come across. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, even the great Vidyadhari, uh, Bai, who's the great uh, Thumri singer, I think, yes, I mean, she was very fond of, you know, wrestling, or she could do wrestling herself. I'm not, I can't remember that, but I think even her, something about it. If you look at it, it's also about a certain mobility and freedom of space, of accessing. See, if you are wrestling or you are, you know, doing latbazi and all of that and uh, also horse riding, then there is an access to open spaces. You know, there's a person who has, enjoys that kind of freedom to access and freedom of movement. It is not exactly speaking of that, really. And and one of the memorable scenes in your uh, book, and it's interesting, I should call it scenes, because you are, of course, a filmmaker, and the, 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 this scene seemed so cinematic to me. Like, if ever a web series is made, this could really be a pivotal scene in the pilot episode, is that wrestling match, where you describe how this wrestler, Dilip Singh, is just beating all comers, and then at one point where every, he's beaten everyone, he's like, you know, does anyone care to challenge me? Does anyone have the courage? And this young 19-year-old Tawaif, which is, of course, Dharman Bhai, has a self-confidence to say that I will challenge you. And then she challenges him. And then that wrestling scene itself is so tinged with uh, the erotic that they are actually wrestling with each other. And it's a clash where uh, eventually uh, none of them win. And yeah. uh, then they eventually become lovers. And all of that was sort of A, incredibly fascinating. And B, one then wonders that the people who are telling you the story, her great-great-great-granddaughter... You know, in their imagining, how is all of this happening? Are they romanticizing it? Are they sort of uh, building it up? Are you filling in certain blanks yourself? See, I think what I was interested in was in the ways in which the story was being told to me. Because I think, after all, these are stories that are coming down so many generations. There surely must be additions in them, which I was open to. And my interest was not that this has to be some authentic that the, each part of the story has to be validated. Because my interest in these stories was of the Tawaifs telling their own stories. I mean, see, what is important to them in the telling of the story about, say, Dharman Bibi? And even anything they've added would uh, actually Precisely. be revelatory. Of, Absolutely. Uh, so that is that is why I was so interested in hearing from them uh, the stories about, you know, these women in their families. Because that points towards the ways in what are the things that they valorize? What are the things that are important? Where is the erotic? And erotic, I realized pretty much, could also reside in a wrestling match. And in fact, it was very erotic. The, you know, when uh, I could see immense possibilities then. It's something if, if I had been just presented uh, 
if i had to think of it maybe for a moment i'd be a bit flummoxed but once i was told that story definitely yes of course an extremely erotic moment and charged moment in fact in fact the image that came to mind is in the film ghost patrick swayze and demi moore and they're doing that sculpting bit and yeah, that's an yeah, erotic moment in yeah. that act of what is otherwise something totally unerotic yeah, yeah and i was also you know there's also this sort of fantastical element in your book in the stories which are obviously coming through from what the stories that you are being told and you are reproducing them for example much later when dharman bibi uh, you know she and her husband uh, kuvar singh have rebelled and they are on the run and all of that and she's hiding in a temple and she's giving birth to twins and every element of that little bit is obviously not true but obviously also true in a certain way for example every time the english try to enter there's a lightning strike and she is protected the devi is and protecting the devi her. is that's protected. how they read it yeah and uh, see for me i think that's the documentary part uh, filmmaker part of me i realized pretty early as a filmmaker and documentary filmmaker that reality is very relative you know in terms of what is reality it could be a slippery creature and uh, your reality is not the same as mine and for me what is more important is in terms of the ways in which a story is told it's not the whether it happened or it didn't happen exactly. it's actually ultimately what is the story telling me what is it pointing me towards so uh, there is this kind of element of magical realism which is there throughout the book now here is a community that you know is also very steeped in by the way in sufi worship and then uh, that cuts across hindus and muslims um and there is a ways in which that they i think that could be true of a lot of other indians uh, it's of looking at realities where this kind of uh, you know this junk between what we call the fantastical and the real world necessarily does not exist so what is you know the there are ghosts who enter your you know world and they are also creatures and they are also there are sufi saints who are your benefactors and they are people almost i mean they become like characters you know characters in your story and they are like these your family elders also almost taking care of you so i pretty much realized that i mean this was an amazing treasure trove of stories and i didn't want to reduce be reductionist and you know because i think for me the way they were told to me i was interested in telling them as they were without passing judgment because how can i claim that my reality is of a superior nature or more real i mean or my idea of reality is there's no ways in which there is certain arrogance that i could be speaking from that no oh, i agree entirely and I, I... and for me for instance that you know the whole bit about when dharman bibi is giving birth to the baby girls in the sanctuary of mundeshwari devi's temple here's a muslim tawaif this is a narrative which flies in the face of colonial writing and also later even the you know the hindu nationalist writing it shows you how natural our syncreticness yeah. is so and here are these muslim tawaifs three generations down or four generations down telling me that story about so 
it is their telling of the story that i am going on and where mundeshwari naturally becomes foster mother almost she she is devi she is the mother is mother goddess she has to be dharman's mother and she will have to protect dharman and she dharman becomes her daughter and this dharman this great warrior the wife warrior is now at her most vulnerable because you know she is is giving birth, giving birth and she is helpless and the enemy is outside and so of course she is in the embrace of her mother who then takes care of her and protects her when i heard of it i actually had goosebumps you know because uh, and then they attribute and says you see sada bahar don't forget one of she the twins was was one of the twins yeah. who uh, the daughters dharman's daughter and sada bahar you know is has this mystical destiny and she's also very fearless uh, in many ways and they said that sada bahar was after all born under mundeshwari's gaze and it somehow becomes that you know that transmission of a certain energy that happened now it's all very fascinating and this also kind of ruptures this kind of um, ways in which you patriarchy posits the illicit sexuality of the tawaif and the devi you know aap ya devi hain ya patita hai but here actually the tawaif is giving birth in the sanctuary of the devi and the devi is becomes the mother so of course i love this story and i i it said so many things to me and gave, provided me with an understanding with the ways in which they construct a certain syncretism and a lived syncretism it's not like a spoken of or romanticized this is like very matter of fact way this story was told to me uh and i just hope that the readers also kind of you know it would give them that kind of peep But that's that's one of the things that made your book such a fun read is that you have allowed these stories to sort of uh, like you said you just documented them and it strikes me in a way that all histories are in some sense or the other mythologies and you know the fact that a lot of this history is actually almost oral history is coming down through the generations so you know all these layers are getting added on and and there were some beautifully filmy layers and all this but you know in her life also there are these sort of you see society and the economy and politics changing as well you know for example in the fact that as you pointed out she was besotted with the lipsing she wanted to be with him but his economic circumstances led him to you know follow his brothers into the army and he's gone and uh, um, then she is being wooed by this man old enough to be her grandfather coercing and at first he's not willing and uh, then comes this very filmy element of her aunt zahuran being wood and poisoned by this khanazad khan so to cut a long story short and it's a delightful filmy story again she dies and she gets into this marriage and it's it's a wonderful beautiful loving marriage which is you know it's it's, it's not a marriage it's a partnership it's a partnership, partnership. yeah she's a mistress but yeah. it's almost like a marriage in the yeah. sense that she's the official uh, sort of i mean there's another very nice story you tell about how this english official comes to coversing's house and you know other the wives are performing for him and obviously dharman is at an elevated level being the mistress of this man and she is not expected to perform but then the englishman says no i want to see her and he can't piss off the englishman because his economic fortunes are going down and yeah. he depends on the british and uh, uh, she performs <clears throat> and he is getting to sort of carried away by this and i'll quote from your book uh, dharman seethed silently 
this virangi foreigner was behaving as if she the leading tawaif of shahabad was a humble nachniya a low placed dancer or worse a poor prostitute selling sex to english soldiers stop quote and there is again a delightful story about how she keeps spiling him with drinks and then sends one Gets of her so drunk and then yeah sends a maid servant dressed in her clothes and the guy doesn't realize uh, the difference all of which is like incredibly filmy so if bollywood people are listening to this <laughs> these stories come down the book is also pegged into actual research and you know i mean and archival research and so which is part which took a lot of time but actually to understand a community how do you understand a community i yes the context i was providing and i i was working hard on the in researching the political social changing context you know this is it's like the unfolding of india through this family over 200 years and the thing is that the history of music and musicians in india especially there's not that much written material it's very based on oral accounts oral histories you have to actually depend on those and you come across actually over and over again you come across very many stories i make no claims that any of these stories necessarily it's exactly how it happened it may or it may not have happened that way but it's the family's understanding of their sense of self they derive their sense of self from these stories of their well grandmother aunts grand aunts that is what is giving also like you know getting channelized into their sense of self and what is that construction how are they constructing these histories that speaks to me a lot about how the community constructs itself what the community values it gives me a peep into their ways of being so you know some of the whether unbelievable or not some of them are very actually very delightful and the ones which uh, which have the element of great element of magical realism later on there's this story of this you know aunt of the protagonist who literally loses her way she has this destiny of being one of the greatest musicians and it's a cautionary tale actually and you know the wife narratives abound with cautionary tales so she loses her way because of her own hubris and then ultimately because she had for long served you know the rag and ragnis well it's they who come to her rescue literally and she finds herself in a forest and they rescue her and they take her away i mean it's an incredible story so and it speaks to me about the intensely close relationship that you know these musicians have with their music that's actually what it's speaking about in a very personal relationship which was so which is defining so much of their being that ultimately where you are saying that if i am in the danger of being killed it is my music which will come and save me and music literally in the shape of a man or woman personified i just found that those stories fascinating and and less listeners think that the book is just a magic realist exercise it's no, not that's just a small part of it i i i found a lot of the background research very meticulous and i am kind of fairly familiar with the uh, uh, that period what i you know found very interesting and wasn't so clued into was one you've written of course about slavery 
that it was so prevalent and it's not something that happened in america in the mid 19th century no. and was abolished it was very prevalent in india where people would sell their children and people would even sell their wives and all of that and there'd be sales deeds there'll be sales deeds <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's shockingly enough yeah yeah so it is part of our uh, recent history as well mm. and what our else? culture our culture <laughs> as it were. and what also kind of um, struck me was how much of the wife families how much of the community is sustained through adoption like dharman bibi's aunt was herself adopted as you pointed out and there's a lot of sort of um, like you write uh, quote adoption of girl children among childless tawaifs was most common but it was not considered unusual for tawaifs with biological daughters of their own to adopt as well more daughters in the family meant more earning members and prosperity for the kotha stop quote sort of pointing to the economic incentives yeah. of all of this no but actually um the as the book points out in the later chapters and that is from post 1857 yeah. uh you know the rule shifted from the east india company to the crown to the british crown directly and um so you know there's uh, the ipc and all of these the law changed and adoption by tawaifs was uh, declared illegal so you know those tawaifs who had already adopted well then their uh, foster daughters could not claim property because it was not recognized by the state and any adoption done thereafter from 1860 onwards was anyway de- deemed illegal and a criminal activity so um and then there's this entire thing about how this family uh sadabahar and her you know twin and uh, their foster mothers lose their entire fortune in being taken to the courts over this whole issue um but the thing is that adoption was fairly common and there are hangovers of uh, some of those terms which still remain so you know for instance even to this day i was rather shocked when <laughs> they used the term malkin and malkin is kind of slave owner i mean yeah. it kind of conjures up uh things so but it's obviously a hangover because malkins now they say it simply means you know like the mother of a active it, this is being now used in context of bar dancers some of whom come from tawai families but the process of adoption from the outside stopped and that is because by the criminalization of the entire tradition by the colonial state so a they were being you know this point of time 1870s 1880s you have a plethora of court cases if uh, one comes across in the archives and um, where especially actually of uh, you know uh, dancers and uh, singer communities from west india and uh, also from the devdasi communities and also tawaif some tawaifs which is on litigation which is on this very fact that also oh, and so is you know ad- adopted daughter well her claims upon property being contested because well she is illegal so you know that so de facto then her claims are not recognized so this process there was an entire there seems to have been a big churning actually within the community that's actually where my archive my archival research came in handy is looking at that and uh, piecing the uh, things also the fa- i think that somewhere around late uh, 19th early 20th century at least from within the tawaf communities adoption from the outside came to an end because there is no memory of 
adopting daughters from the outside yes adopting your own nieces that kind of within the family that continued and that continued because well you know they just felt that that needed no official sanction one of the smart things that tawaf communities in the north did which i don't know why it was not followed by the communities of dancers and singers in the west and south was that they actually had an embargo of not accessing law courts uh-huh. it's really very interesting and um, because they they kind of realized quite early on that look we are the losers every time we drag some family matter or you know issue into the courts because there's just so much bias and hostility and prejudice uh, against well so called prostitutes na so who are not and certainly their customary lifestyle their norms customs are not being recognized at all so there was a certain embargo which is really very interesting that they imposed a you know if if you go to access if any family does do that then they would be excommunicated now whether that was imposed all across all the communities in the north i don't know but seems to have been imposed at least in a lot of places and people have a memory of that and in a sense it's a fantastic and it's a it's a it's fantastic as an example of fighting colonialism you know yeah. which would our nationalists today would perhaps not think of that as a typical example but it's an act of civil disobedience yeah so they basically here it was of survival of mm. protecting your own customs and norms and so very typically the answer i would get was ki hum kisi ke mamle mein nahi padte koi hamare mamle mein na pade you know so we don't meddle in your affairs you don't meddle in ours we so we don't want to go to the courts we'll settle our affairs ourselves because they realize very smart that they would they were losers in colonial courts and that you know kind of uh, discomfort of accessing law courts kind of still continues i mean it's not although now of course there are no tawaifs so you know this but and things have changed substantially but you hear of fewer numbers of cases going to the courts the emphasis still is of resolving it within the community somehow in fact one of the the, the most striking factoids um which provided an impetus to the uh, the already moralistic stance of the british the most striking factoid was that more soldiers died in the 1857 mutiny from venereal disease than in combat yeah. and this completely blew my mind more european soldiers yeah. died in 1857 from venereal disease than in combat and you know you already had existing offenses of adultery and enticement in the indian penal code to that it was added you know prostitutes and dancing girls quote and quote as you've said were forbidden from adopting children since this was presumed to be for the purpose of inducting them into prostitution your words and uh, you also say quote colonial law making thus contributed substantially to the dissolution of the autonomy and privileged position as independent women of substance that courtesans had customarily enjoyed stop quote and then you talk about how you know um, state surveillance goes up and there are all these efforts see to- that is one part of it that is the criminal aspect criminalizing the tradition the other aspect was in terms of even in terms of personal you know the, the so called you know this the law making was divided into you know this criminal uh, civil. personal uh, yeah so um and so here what happened was that i mean that had existed even pre 1857 but post 1857 you had muslim personal law 
Hindu personal law. So, communities were to be governed. You know, their matters pertaining to inheritance, separation, property, all the civil matters would be, and that was to placate actually, you know, what was perceived to be the traditional, more traditional um, elements within Indian society, who it was felt had got very offended by, you know, colonial uh, evangelical activity. And that was one of the reasons for 1857. Now, so all civil matters came under these, you know, uh, Hindu law, Muslim law, Christian law, etc., etc. These were necessarily, you know, they are necessarily patriarchal in nature because where men are privileged in all of these, after all, over women, any of these law things. So uh, the customs, you know, whereas what the Tawaifs or any of the communities, it's not just the Tawaifs. I mean, it's any of the communities, the other communities, they had followed thus far customary law. Customary law, A, because they were all these communities who were not of, you know, so-called high caste. You know, many of them did not have all of this written down. This came as part of a certain oral, uh, you know, uh, tradition, uh, an oral memory of law making. That what happens is, and it does not fall neatly into being Hindu or Muslim. So, for instance, nut tawives, if they are nut, Hindu Natta wives and Muslim Natta wives, they all follow the same, you know, customs. And that is true for all the other communities of the wives also, in terms of inheritance, property, whatever, whatever. Now, as far as the, and where, of course, women are being privileged, you know, in, in the wives. Now, if they go to the, this was the greatest blow to the position and autonomy of the wives. You know, and one of the reasons why they stopped accessing law courts, because when they went to the law court, the first thing was that, you know, if there was any law uh, case, you know, say a brother contesting against his sister, the brother automatically stood much greater chance of winning the case. Because that is how actually, whether it is, you know, Muslim personal law or Hindu personal law, it is patriarchal, it privileges men, any of these lawmakings. Secondly, their customary law was not recognized because they said you are prostitutes, you are criminals. So to uh, to claim that you are, this is custom is to say as if a band of thieves has a certain customs. So, you know, their customs were disparaged. And then thirdly, there's a certain identity of being either Hindu or Muslim imposed on them. It's fascinating. If you go through the legal archives, where actually there are these contests made saying, you know, but your honor, my client is neither Hindu nor Muslim, but identifies herself as what, what, what. And this is no, how can that be? It's very clear. Her name is this. Her mother's name was this. They follow the custom of burial. And so they have to be you know, Muslim. So there, there was a certain imposition. There's also a certain ways in which there's a congealing of identities that takes place in late 19th century. It's all a parcel of ways in which identities, you know, this, this disparate Hindu, Muslim, they get shaped also in this uh, period. But actually, it's also, it's a greatly contributed to the erosion of the status of Tawaifs. 
so it was not just their criminalization which is you know in terms of state surveillance in terms of you know like for instance the the ways in which the contagious disease acts where you were had to go and get yourself compulsorily i mean you examined etc etc all that was there anyway it was actually civil law which was really really eroded their position which is why actually they said goodbye they had a good sense to say goodbye to the law courts as far as these cases were concerned they resolved it within themselves no and it also strikes me about how it is such a blow to the beautiful diversity of our country by you know using the coercive power of the state to force them into these categories yeah. and even any kind of passive resistance that they do like uh, you know boycotting the courts will eventually fail because we are talking about them in the past tense we you know we and, and like this i'm sure we've destroyed so many other no also these are communities which were always much more marginal you know yeah i mean they were dependent upon their survival on patronage the fact is that their patrons themselves were you know in many ways negotiating i mean either they were buying their peace and that was fine with the colonial state but many of them were not able to buy that peace also and these were communities that are anyway much more marginal much more vulnerable to all the pulls and pushes and it's not just the tawafs you have communities across board who were being pushed around in this ways and being forced to then start you know self identifying themselves in certain ways which which you know and i think that had a very profound impact in terms of the reshaping of indian society very very profound ways and i think that really needs more study and more work and you of course written very beautifully in your book about how through the second half of the 19th century there are more and more already being marginal there are more and more marginalized and so on and interestingly they have that brief moment in the mainstream when the gramophone comes in and it's almost they who make the gramophone mainstream yeah. instead of the other way around tell tell me a bit about that phase and how that played out well you know the the coming of the gramophone i mean that, that's there in the book it's actually all well documented you know this there was a big market with the coming of the actual gramophone and the recording machines there was this whole like big uh fascination for the recorded voice so one part of course was to record your own voice your loved ones etc etc but there was much greater demand for music indigenous music so that's how it's very fascinating that early 20th century you have these all these uh, companies from europe and america you know it is racing and coming to india who's going to beat be the first one to reach here because this was recognized as a huge market the huge potential now what is really interesting is that okay they come in and the people the only class of musicians who really show an interest in recording for them are the tawafs and the devdasis um and very few of the male musicians especially you know the khayal singers and drupadiyas and all you have much fewer numbers the why of, is that for many reasons uh see why the men didn't want it is you know the obvious reason is a the purest amongst them felt that it compromised the integrity of their music because something you know khayal can be sung over so many hours it has to be like you have to explore leisurely each nuance and uh, of the rag and then you hear this was even less than 
you know, uh, three minutes. You have to get it over with. So obviously, there was uh, the, the purists felt offended. It was seen as something terribly crass and crude. Commercialization. Uh, yeah, I mean, art. so uh, that uh, was happening and a certain and a vulgarity. Uh, so, so that was one part of it, but well, I mean, all you know, it's all the this is very all very high-minded. But actually, there were also other reasons for it, which were less high-minded. Which was a you know the 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 value of music of some of uh, they felt was based on the fact of its exclusive worth, so that it was being performed for a small audience in these exclusive gatherings of you know in the courts and in princely mehfils and so they felt that that their the value of the music would go if it was accessible to all on the gramophone and could be easily copied by everyone so then what is their exclusive value of their music or their style that style could be copied by everyone then there was a genuine real fear of uh, plagiarism so which dates back then till at that time <laughs> and uh, and the third was actually a you know and you hear that is in terms of you know the the horn the gramophone horn if there was a fear that this actually i mean it's actually it speaks uh, of uh, many things if you think about it there was this thing fear that this sucks the soul of the very singer of the singer people have similar fears about cameras and their photos being taken yeah, and yeah, all that yeah yeah, yeah yeah so uh and well i mean you know if you were to look deeper into that it's this the, you know in terms of looking at the market and music and what it meant etc etc then that can one can go into that so the male musicians had those fears real fears and therefore very few of them till at least almost 1920s very few of them much fewer numbers except for certain notable you know examples like ustad abdul karim khan saab he sang but otherwise you have very few people tawaifs who came in you know large numbers they were the main people who recorded for the gramophone tawaifs and devdasis see a they were being hounded out of the kothas there was an entire you know this period coincided with this whole uh, anti notch movement where you know there was this entire public campaign against uh, organizing uh, notches as they were called notch you know tawaif performances in elite homes you know for weddings or other celebrations so that was this there was there's an entire hounding that was going on at various in various ways in the press in real ways where you know the patrons would be stopped physically from holding these notches etc so they were under pressure to reinvent themselves and gramophone came along and was uh, was almost perfect for many of them to actually reinvent themselves as gramophone singers and to you know do make an image have an image makeover so on the one hand you already have that artistic training and you're you know great performers and on the other hand if you ain't got nothing you got nothing to lose so you just kind of go with it and so i think also with tawaifs if you read their biographies and you you realize that these are women who are always at the forefront of exploring you know the, these uh, lost the frontiers yeah so i mean also you know that great travelers i mean forget about being great at every level i mean you know they were always willing 
that if there is an opportunity which they could there was a possibility of some opportunity to pick up everything and to strike new roots at a completely new place it speaks of a certain way of being i mean and that's of course you know a community living by their wits also of survivors and so they constantly moving i think moving physically from one place to another but also then that also translates in being able to move from one kind of a performance space to another kind of a performance space you know being open to new opportunities in life i think so it was not just the gramophone they were theater then there were films so in fact in terms of the ways in which we see now i mean the cinema and theater and the recording uh, industry mu- uh, mu- mu- recorded music it was so much to tawas and would you say the community really died out or would you say it just got absorbed into the mainstream just as the arts got absorbed into the mainstream in the sense that now there is no taboo against you know people will send their daughters to learn bharatanatyam and kathak and there's uh, no taboo in fact there's even an aspirational sort of attraction uh, for the arts and uh, you know all of that so no, the community died out not just because it did. unfortunately it would have been i think uh, you know there are ways in which and sad it as it may be but ways in which certain you know art forms etc have been wiped out you know in terms of well them not being as popular or the television you know hegemonic kind of uh, entertainments market driven entertainments taking Where over everything is dumbed down yeah. and all that yeah but this is not i don't think that is the case here i mean that just played one part of it the major part of it was the sh- stigmatizing and sustained stigmatizing and shaming of this community where they were literally hounded and pushed out of the kothas to the extent that you pointed out that many former tawars won't even call themselves dad they'll say they're gaikas or they're singers they're, or whatever there's no hope in hell that you will find one former tawaif who will acknowledge you know call herself a tawaif to a stranger there's no way because tawaif now anyway is synonymous with being a sex worker we may argue and rightly so that why should a sex worker be looked down exactly. upon but that is how society does uh, you know look upon them and it's also it's actually a certain systematic vilification that they have suffered you know over the decades till actually say in banaras you know that hounding physical hounding went on till they were actually they had they were forced to shut kothas finally by the early 1980s and that just didn't happen because oh people's taste change that too happened see a lot of things happened together for instance one thing that happened was that you know the emphasis on companionate marriages so you know you with the emphasis on women's education women coming out of parda getting educated the emphasis on marriages where your know, husband and wife share our friends share ideas that's a completely new concept for india in many ways so if there's emphasis on that kind of a relationship then really i mean the need for a mistress who is educated if your wife is educated you know those that itself kind of was you know the the that need lessons even that need for companionship, companionship apart from sex uh, is no being no culti- of, of a cultivated you know companion i mean if that kind of you know was being undercut and cut away but 
in terms of the cinema itself the coming of of cinema and film music that i think went and uh, before that the gramophone recorded music the the thing about because otherwise kothas were also a site was not just a sexual site exactly you were a site for going to listen to music but if there was recorded music by the same voices available then you know Kota was not the only place you could access music, and not just that. That also struck me that you know when you mentioned Kota shutting down earlier, it struck me that many of us may attach the same stigma to Kotas as an old Audrey brothels as we do to the wives. But as your book brings out, uh, they were both kala academies of a sort. Yeah, they were places where people interested in the arts and the culture would gather. An early form of the li- uh, literary festival, in fact, where you you know you speak of Kotas, where you have these platforms and you have places for people to. Say it, and this is where all of art is sort of centered. And then all these discussions, you know, literary discussions with the wife playing hostess. So you have all these poets, and they are, you know, they are reciting. And so Kotha was actually a literary a site for a whole lot of literary cultural activity. Exactly, we connote it now in a singular way as just being a site for sexual activity. That was not necessarily so. So we've spoken for almost two hours about your book, and I'd recommend all my uh, listeners uh, read it because it is both entertaining and moving and enlightening. I think it it carries so many insights about our society, which uh, you know we tend to take so much for granted. I'd like to now sort of turn to your working processes, you know, both across filmmaking and writing, and to writing itself. And one of those here is that you know you're working. I mean, these are people you're spending a lot of time with. They are your friends. They are close to you. There is an intimacy there. You know, you point out about how you know you got fever and uh, your friend looked after you and all of that. But at the same time, they are fulfilling a utilitarian role for you. You know, they are the means to the end of your book, so to say. How do you sort of uh, you know reconcile those things? Is that something that sort of bothered you while writing the film or while writing the books? I don't think they were. It's I would call it utilitarian because. Mm. the ways in which relationships flower and this these are relationships that have uh, flowered over a period of 20 years you see i started work on the other song way back well, nearly 20 years in 2001 and uh, i finished the film but along with the other two films which is part of the trilogy trilogy got over in 2009 and then i started working on the book which was a continuation you know with the same people and just the research going deeper into the research both as a filmmaker I mean, actually i identify myself primarily as a filmmaker you know i mean even now when people ask me i say filmmaker the writer bit is very new to me and well as a writer now my relationship with the all the people that i have worked with if one has a utilitarian approach to you know people there's only that far you go with people if one is using them as a means to an end then that remains just that then the kind of rich the relationship between people as human beings then you don't see them you stop seeing them as human beings because they just become a means to an end to you want your film done so they are that and in certain many ways then you are stripping them of their humanity that's a real problem so no i do not see my relationships with everyone i work with are not 
you you know no i mean not, to imply that what i was no. sort of asking is that they're both personal obviously and genuine but at the same time there is an element that uh, well we are working we are researching i am looking at their lives and it's not that i share an equally close relationship with everyone i work with that is true i don't uh, and i think that also depends from people to people circumstances etc um i think for me that's not just for the 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 wives that i've worked with it's equally true for all the other people i've worked with all the other films i've made i mean it's a cliched question that's asked of non fiction in general actually uh, i've had you know these are relationships that i forge you know they not necessarily um, don't have to be become my bosom buddies but the relationships that i forge and i take care and i think that is reflected then in the films is one in terms of mutual respect and that is why i mean people always tell me what takes so long in your film i mean, you know my films take so long in making not all but some of them have taken immensely long and because for me the process is very important you You're building wrong. the relationship also yeah, you go wrong in the process then you don't have a film and the process is not just glibly saying oh what does mutual respect mean mutual respect really means actually a of respecting the other person respecting the boundaries that they are setting out for themselves respecting those and not trying to be clever and hoping ki boss one day or the other i am going to skip them because people are not stupid if they have some boundaries learn to respect them the way you have boundaries and you want them to be respected and yes over a period of time if you know there's a relationship that intensifies and you know you they allow you in good for you if not too bad it's also means of opening up yourself you know because th- that is a relationship and that is a real problem uh the the unequal power dynamics especially in filmmaking where i'm right up here i'm looking at my subject i expect them like with a microscope i expect them to open up their lives but what about me you know and i don't work like that you know there is a certain giving and taking in terms of like sharing my life of sharing the way i am as a person and that is building up of certain relationships not necessarily of like friendship but in terms of just also as colleagues but relationships which have to be based on a certain equality and i guess also based on honesty because honesty. you're very upfront about what you're there for and how much they give is up to them absolutely and so for instance i mean the, there is a certain process that is involved and it's true from the film i've made is that especially with you know the the trilogy i made because it was very sensitive here were women who were really sharing parts of their lives with me which i felt very privileged that they trusted me enough to do that but then there was a certain process we followed we we cut the film and then the rough cut had to be passed by them before and anything if they said no this you know you know, people say something and then they change their mind then say no i am not comfortable i said that but i don't want that to come and what for that reason you've got to respect that you've got because i genuinely believe in you know in all humility that a film or a book is not more important than a human being or a human life so you know you can do there's no great film at the expense of someone's 
well, peace of mind or their, whatever, you know, their existence. I, that's how I work. And that makes for a very slow moving uh, process. But I think at the end of the day, at least I sleep easier. That You know, the, the relationships I've shared uh, thus far with everyone I've worked with, it's like I feel, yeah, fine. Some people have become lifelong friends. I mean, like so the protagonist of the book and her family. I mean, that family is now family to me and, and she's a very close friend and, you know, so comes and stays with me and all of that. There are some others who might not be my close buddies. But yes, we stay in touch. There is, you know, festivals, etc. You wish each other or whatever. So just, I think it's also, I just feel that in some ways I'm very lucky. It enriches my life you know, too. Very wise words. Let's kind of move on to the other thing that was very interesting to me is that, you know, you made all these films. As you said, you're mainly a filmmaker and then you wrote this book. How, how different was constructing the book as opposed to the film? Like what were your sort of writing practices? How would you discipline yourself? What did you learn about the process when you got into it? You know, in some ways, some of the basics were not that different. Because filmmaking, except in spurts, when you're working with a crew, when you're shooting, or when you are finally putting it together with an editor, it's essentially a very lonely exercise. You are on your own. And uh, not lonely, but on your own, rather. So in that sense, working on the book didn't feel that very different. I mean, the research process was the same. I... I didn't do anything different. I followed the same processes, just that it became much more intense. The process of like my archival research obviously had to be much more thorough, intense and long drawn out, wider than I'd done for a film. I don't need to do that much for, you know, a film which is at the maximum 120 minutes long, which has many other elements too. I think my greatest challenge as a, while writing and certainly in the first part, first phase, first few years, I'd say, A was to find my voice. I mean, as a filmmaker, over the years, you know, in some way you, you fall, you get up, whatever, by just doing and you learn, you get a sense of what is working, what is not working. You get a grammar. You learn and as a film student, there's some basic grammar of the medium that one learned. Here, I had to learn the grammar myself or, well, hope that I'm getting it right. And also improvise a bit because it seems to me a very unconventional grammar for a typical Western novel or typical Western book rather because it's actually a second person voice but contained within that is a, it very shifts to third person because you sort of take over the narrative of that second person who's that telling That was you. difficult to begin with because that was the other part. That was the other challenge. So one was, of course, like... Is this reading well? Is this reading at all? Because as a filmmaker, when I see something, I say, okay, this shot is not working and I know why this is not working. And I could have a sense of what could work. I might have not done it, but at least I have a sense that if not, something else will. As a first-time writer, that was a challenge. 
you know, I'd be constantly like, like scared. And this seemed to me to be a very bold choice, this going with the second person account, second uh, person voice. And then, you know, though it's mostly third person because it's that person's voice speaking. I, but Well, this came out of the other challenge. And that challenge was, how do you write the story of people who are living, who are very much there, who do not wish to have their identities revealed, but whose story you wish to tell honestly. Because there is, it's very important to share those stories. It's really important. And, but how do you protect them, their identity in the process? That, I think, was my toughest challenge. Because it's much easier to write about people who are dead and gone, you know. But these are living families. And I have a sense of responsibility, duty towards them. You can't just, like, put them out, you know, to... So, okay, okay, I changed their names. But that was the simpler part. Changing names, then I tried, but that wasn't good enough. Because I was fearful, maybe not everyone, but at least some people who knew the or knew of them could still be able to figure out that this is so-and-so. Because there were certain things I wasn't changing. The Babua was not changed, this town that they come from, originally come from, and Banaras. So I was very fearful that then people could perhaps put the pieces try together. To put the pieces. And I didn't want that. So then became this challenge that, okay, the thing is that my stories have to be authentic and they have to be as they were told to, you know, they have to be narrated as they were told to me. But they don't necessarily have to be exactly of the same person. So once I decided that, you know, so yes, there is this family. There is a family, definitely. But you don't know their name. Only I know them. As long as I'm true to the family in terms of the the ways in which the family functions, the family dynamics, the family broader history, then I started making composite characters also. So there's some character that, say, for instance, I would, you know, it's fit in from somewhere, put them in. That started, that was also a very intensely creative process. But also, then it was also diffused chances of easy identification. You know, people say, okay. Lekin ye kaun ye, lekin ye family mein and, and that's all done very deliberately. You know, some characters have been introduced. Because how does it matter to a reader that this family is actually there? Because you're not actually getting to know that the real family. That's the whole point of it you have they have to be protected at all they don't want to be known how have they reacted to the book they're very very happy there's the protagonist she she loved the cover and she told me she said this is just like me well <laughs> i and says ki you know your the the artist orijit sen made the cover and it's really a very beautiful cover very very beautiful it is yeah so and says, this is just like, you You know, he's done such a good likeness of me. Well, he hadn't. He had just, this is his imagination. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But for obvious reasons, they don't want to keep the copy in their house. And that's very understandable and it's very, very sad. 
So she's very proud. And, you know, she... And I know that there are times when she's very tempted to say, that's me. And I've told her, I said, you know, anytime you feel like saying so, it's your story, you say it. But then that's her call to make. Fair enough. So, my, you know, my final question before I release you from the torment of this non-air conditioned studio is that, you know, the book is done. Um, it, it might seem that it's just a book of history, that the Tawaifs are a community which is no more. But it seems to me that especially in current times, it carries a lot of resonance because this imposition of morality, this imposition of a certain kind of narrative where some things are right and some things aren't and where everything some has to fit. Some people belong, in. some don't. Some people belong, some don't and everything has to fit into these neat categories seems to me now as oppressive for all of us as, you know, what happened to the Tawaiyas was oppressive for them. You know, so when you look at these current times and you're also someone who's a social activist yourself, you're active in all of this. That's a new role. I feel very strange when people say social activist. Well, I mean, you started off the not in I, my name uh, sort of... Uh, I think this dispensation has forced many of us to... By default, take, yeah. By default, just forced us. Yeah. Activism, I never thought, you know, that that is something I would be doing. But then they leave you with not much choice. So, I, I mean, I don't even know what my question is. It's kind of a lament. I'm like one of those old men at those Q&As who's, you know, not asking a question but giving a comment. Yeah. But your book spoke to me also because of that reason. Because I think that what happened to the Tawaiyas in a sense is happening to all citizens who care about, uh, you know, our diversity and, you know, our sense of what India is. And is that something that also kind of strikes you as, you know, someone who's made these films and written this book? Oh, it was very... It was very clear to me while I was writing the book because the latter part of the book especially was written and a lot of things changed in that period in the life of my protagonist and so it's documented and, and, uh, and especially in the past five or six years it was very obvious, you know, what was, you know, I could see it. I mean, I could see it, of course, it at the level of, you know, what was happening around at a macro level and reacting, etc. But um, here I was dealing with a family and with my friend who, you know, she's always, always been shamed and, you know, victimized for identity. So fine, she was, she was victimized for being a Tawaif. She left that far behind. It's, leading, I, mean, I don't want to reveal the book, but yeah, is leading a certain life, which is very different. The book actually talks about it. It's, you know, she, very respectable life. How does she leave behind being Muslim? And now she's, you know, she has to deal with being a Muslim in the India of today. And, uh, well, and also a single woman, you know, woman-headed household with grandchildren, young grandchildren and it's a very vulnerable position to be in, especially in UP, to be in UP and in Banaras. in Banaras, to be a Muslim in Banaras. Uh, although Banaras actually has a very sizable Muslim population, which is a very well-kept secret. But uh, it would strike me. And, you know, while I was writing the book, it really would come 
home to me because it was also the ongoing conversations and it was becoming more and more about her sense of identity as a muslim then and also this just completely i mean here is someone who i don't know of anyone really i don't know of anyone who in her lived life and her practice she intensely a spiritual person you know this lot about apa that i kind of go along with but it's not that i fully understand because i'm not i mean i don't necessarily share that but an intensely catholic you know very catholic in her belief systems completely i mean you know the secularism of course means that you keep religion away from other aspects of life but in the indian context secularism actually means when all religions are given that equal importance she is the great one practitioner i know of that indian version of secularism you know just genuinely there's no bias no prejudice never and i mean come on her the the person she had her longest relationship with the like a husband her long standing love was a hindu her children have a had a hindu come out of that union so and she is, i remember when you know in 2015 16 when the mob lynchings were at their peak she is really perplexed she just couldn't make sense of it and she said how can they do this how do i explain to her you know because and the point is that it's not happened overnight the point is that there are i think it's been a we might tend to now conveniently say oh 2014 was this like that's when things went bad but i think the fact is there's been a slide and there's for a very long time I've done an episode with Akshay Mukul on his book, The Gita, Gita Press, Press. and this has been a strain in Absolutely. our society in the for book, decades. The Tawafnama, if you, actually the people have commented, and I was conscious of it. I mean, although it's not that I did it consciously, it's as much also a book about Hindu nationalism and the fact that that dark underside of nationalism, which is Hindu nationalism, has always been present. It's just that you know it could. certain ways points be balanced out but it was always there and almost as an and, extension of british colonialism yeah, and we and then there's been a slide in you know i mean especially from the 1980s onwards with the whole thing of opening up of ram mandir you know ayodhya and all of that i think that kind of but it's not as if before that uh, it didn't exist it was there it was that darkness was there you know the the so called non communal parties they opened the doors for this for them to come in and we are paying the, all of us are paying the price for it today and today of course i mean the very existence I mean, when she says she's panicked she's paranoid you know this whole thing about not accessing courts and all now it doesn't hold because she is paranoid she says i you know about she's been running around collecting every shred of paper about you know proving your identity so th- what do i say you know you boycott it it's someone she's one of the most vulnerable people and people she, like that can't afford to say hum kagaz nahi dikhayenge huh. we so, can't I mean, afford to say that uh, the only way i i believe in hum kagaz nahi dikhayenge but that has to be at a community level then yeah you it 
cannot be at an individual level because you know they just the people are just so so vulnerable you can't push them into you know this and can't hold here yeah, in front of that so i mean if there has to be a you know this civil disobedience well then it has to be across localities or communities well, whichever way it works best so yeah i mean i have strangely you know the i've this book came out and then from since last year and been busy with the thing of promoting it and you know going through the thing and it's been fun but it's also somewhere the danger that we are all in and which is looming in a way because we well we are inured by many things you know the class and all of that but but the danger that india is in at the moment i think that anyone anyone with a modicum of brains could see just you know and in a sense that's what your very fine book is also about uh, thank you so much for coming on the show sabha thank you if you enjoyed listening to this episode head on over to your nearest bookstore online or offline and please buy tawaif nama by sabadewan we you know barely scratched the surface of what the book is about and i guarantee you'll enjoy it saba very smartly is not on social media that's how she gets work done but you can follow me on twitter at amit verma a m i t v a r m a you can browse past episodes of the scene and the unseen at sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com thank you for listening Did you enjoy this episode of The Scene in the Unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to sceneunseen.in/support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.